0: Welcome to LaGrange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science, technology, and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Science of Australia, who are a youth organisation with members aged 15 to 25, whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On today's episode of LaGrange Point, we have Ricardo. Hey, guys. And myself, Justin. I hope you've got your code-breaking apparatus ready, because today's episode is on cryptography. We're going to go through the history of
1: code-breaking as well as public key encryption. And we're going to look at how are the major banks are keeping your credit card safe, as well as the Ryman Hypothesis and what it means for you. And we're finally going to end with quantum encryption. We're going to kick off with our Launchpad News section. Okay, Justin, tell me, how great is it knowing a second language? It's really
0: cool because it means that in a situation where you're with someone else and you don't want people to understand what you're saying, you can communicate
1: without having people overhearing you. And this is really cool because maybe you don't want them to know, maybe you want to keep it private. And this is the very basis of something which is called cryptography. So transmitting a message to someone in a very private of discreet fashion in a way that no one else will be able to read what you're trying to say. And we're going
0: to talk about that in today's episode. We're going to go through the history of cryptography and how we use it in our modern world. We've been sending secret messages to other people for ages and ages and ages. Language has meant that we can communicate with other people and we can accomplish great things when we communicate with each other. But unfortunately, due to the very human nature, sometimes we want to have secrets, but we only want some people to know those secrets. That's right, and in ancient times, when we were at war, for example, we'd often go to great lengths to conceal secrets but give them to our other people we wanted to help, and so they could come and help us. Obviously,
1: you want to share your strategies with your allies, and not with your enemies, because that would result in bad things happening. And one of the first ways that they did this, and I'm not sure if this is military or not, okay, okay. And, thing. and one of the first ways this was actually implemented was using a stick. And then what they would do, they, they coded the
0: message on the stick to actually then transmit through a courier or a runner from one side,
1: from one camp to the other. So you get the message and you wind it around this stick, and if You don't have the correct diameter stick, you're not going to be able to read the message properly.
0: And that's a really cool way, and a very simple way, of transmitting a code. You might also have heard of drums signals, smoke signals, other ways of using code to transmit information over long distances in a way that no one else understands.
1: I mean, a lot of people know about Morse code, which is just using dots and dashes, and is a very primitive uh, telecommunication system.
0: But it's not actually a piece of encryption, necessarily, because it's easily understood what's going on. One of the really funny ways that I like from ancient history of encrypting a message was to get a person, was to shave their head, and then tattoo or paint on their scalp a messaging code. Then they would grow, their hair would grow out, and then they would travel. Undetected through one side to the other, the enemy wouldn't be able to see them, and then when they would reach their destination, shave their head, and the message would be visible. Now, that was a very primitive, but a very, very effective way of transmitting an information in code. When we went through the Middle Ages, all kinds of advancements were made in code, codes and code-breaking. If you could break codes, you were a fantastic use to a king or queen or noble who wanted to know what his enemies were up to. But of, of course, you wanted to keep your, your secrets secret. One of the most famous codes is Caesar's Code, which involves a shift by three letters for C, or any other letter combination. And there's a whole bunch of other ones with simple letter shifts, and I'm sure you've played around where you've decided the entire alphabet just shifts
1: along three letters. And that's right. And and a very basic shift like the Caesar's three-letter shift... ...can mess up anything. I mean, it's, it's very hard to then, just by looking at it, understand what it is. You have to sit there and mechanically do it. And back in the medieval times, you didn't have a computer that would do it automatically. So yeah. you had to have these people who would sit down and try to break the encryption.
0: And that led to an arms race between the different courtiers of actually doing this kind of encryption and
1: decryption. And it gets even better because as technology uh, increased, so did the potential to employ different types of cryptography... Uh, World War II is where we really saw an explosion of these sort of um, electronically implemented uh
0: cryptography machines. So we went from being systems where we had to come up by hand. And the problem with that is that you have to come up with a cipher that you know the rules for. And you know that, okay, well, here I'm shifting everything by three letters, but I might give everything a number and then shift everything by three letters as well so it's doubly coded and protected. But then you have to tell the other person exactly what they have to do to decode that. Once you agree on those rules, then you both know how to read this message. And that is the basic premise of cryptography. Right. But the problem is human human time. If you want to change your message into code, that requires a lot of steps and effort and time and it's very time consuming. So when we were in World War One and World War Two, we started to have machines. And these machines could do that conversion for us. And that meant we could come up with really, really, really complex codes. That would be completely indecipherable by hand. And an example of that is the Enigma machine. The Enigma. Which the Germans used in World War II on their U-boats. And that meant their
1: signals could go everywhere, but no one would be able to read them so they'd be safe. And Justin, I mean, we talk about this encryption, but how safe is it? I mean, like, could you guess the key? What are the probabilities with Enigma? The, the
0: problem is, when you see a message in code, you don't know which coding system they've used, and you don't know how to de- even decode, even if you knew the coding system. And the Enigma machine was actually so clever because it cycled through different combinations and different uh, message things so that it would actually change continuously. And so, even looking at two messages from the same machine, you wouldn't know what they were being used. And so it was the work of some great computer scientists at Bletchley Park in the UK who managed to reverse-engineer the Enigma machine and break the codes, led by Alan Turing and his swath of team, especially a lot of women who did a lot of the fantastic work in analysing that data, breaking down those codes and then replicating it with the first computers. So the first computers we have started their lives as code-breaking machines. Nowadays, cryptography is a bit more advanced than that, and thanks to the advent of computers, we have all different types of cryptography. And that's very important because thanks to the internet and telecommunications, we're sending more and more secrets than ever. And no, I'm not talking about your Facebook statuses, though your password to your Facebook account is using an encryption technique that would dwarf anything used in World War II. So what we're going to do now is going to look at one of the really interesting cases and in modern uses of encryption on computers called public key encryption.
1: So today maybe we're not so much interested in royal matters and matters of military. You and I, Justin, might be more interested in sending our logon details more securely over the internet. And this could be for Facebook. This could be for your favorite RPG, such as World of Warcraft. This might even be um, logging on to your online banking service. And I'm sure you would agree that having your password and username secure is a great thing. So now we've talked about the applications. How do we actually do this, Justin? So, one of the first ways that we've
0: talked about before of encrypting a message was like getting a box, putting a message inside it, and then locking it with a key. We would send that box to someone, and as long as Ricardo had the same key, he would be able to open my box and read it. And that's great. But But the problem is there's only one type of key that opens that
1: box if anyone else steals that key or copies that key they can open that box at any time so it it pretty much compromises your entire security system and you don't necessarily know it either yeah so that's that's what we call basically symmetric encryption okay so let's talk about another method so we talked about the box right everyone's got the same key now let's envisage another example um, say there's a sort of a Dropbox thing. So similar to where you'd submit an assignment at school. Or a mailbox, right? So it's a locked mailbox. Now what we might
0: say is that everyone might know the location of that mailbox. You can come put a letter in that at any time. Ricardo, if he wants to deliver me a secret message, all he needs to do is go to my mailbox and drop it in. Now I'm the only person who has my key to open that
1: mailbox. And so how this is implemented in the computer, Justin would send out his address or public key and... Everyone would be able to send him things that only Justin's eyes would get to see. Because only
0: I have the key, the
1: private key, to unlock that mailbox, decode that message, and read it. And the same works in return. And Justin would want to send something that only I would see, he would use my public key, and then I would go and retrieve it using my private key. So
0: I know Ricardo's address for his mailbox, I drop a letter in there, and he can open his locked mailbox with his own key. So that's that's how we use encryption using key, public key encryption we can add a further level of complication on that by using seals, where we say okay, well, Rick, when he gets, when he opens that mailbox with his key, he can only read that if he signs for it using his signature, and we use that as like a, a method test, and computers do that using you know, fancy, basically, signatures, and that's what we use for a lot of applications the problem is that that can still be intercepted, and that can still be hacked, so if you know his mailbox location, you can still kind of figure out what's going on, especially if you intercept any of our private keys. are other part is that the message in the meantime is sitting in this box that is very obvious to where it is located and it's, you can actually brute force and go oh, I know that type of box mailbox I know how to open that one so it's fine I can figure it out anyway even if I don't have the key so we're like okay how can we make this harder how, if, I, if instead of Ricardo's mailbox being
1: publicly available and everyone knows it and static we can change it randomly so, for ultra-high uh, security applications these days, um, you get this uh, RSA little uh, little sort of dongle-type thing, and what it does is it generates a RSA... Uh, a number. A number. So, this is, this is just a few digits um, which you use with all your communications. And so, what this number does, you'll get one, and the person receiving your message will get one. So, say I'm trying to send a message to Justin, and we'll use the same analogy as before. Justin's mailbox is on the wall. Um, I will approach that wall, and someone will say, okay, today you will be placing your mail in letterbox number three and
0: my, my dongle will tell me that I need to look at mailbox number three today and so I will open the mailbox number three after Rick's Zephyr's message and get my message but then we might go the next day Ricardo wants to leave me another message and he'll come through me and say okay well hang on a my dongle today tells me that I need to open I put it in mailbox number 99 and so when I'm getting to collect his message I have to open mailbox 99 and so if you've ever seen one of these, these little things in action these RSA tokens as they're called you can actually even get applications to do it on your smartphone as well um, they're randomly generating the series of numbers usually they're about eight digits and what that's actually doing is coming up with a very complicated series of prime primes are really really useful for encryption because if we multiply two prime numbers together and the power of these two prime numbers together we can end up with a really 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 huge number you may have heard about 16 bit encryption 128 bit encryption what that basically means is how many digits are in this massive prime number that you formed this massive number f- based on the multiplications of these primes.
1: Why? W- yeah, sorry, Justin. Why do we want to start multiplying primes together? What, you know, what's the benefit of that?
0: Because multiplying primes raised to a power is an irreversible function. If I, Ricardo, wanted to take the number 36, I could go, well, hang on. We know the factors of 36 are 6, 6, <laughs> 3, <laughs> 12, 1, and 36. So if I wanted to figure out which numbers I'd use to create 36... I've got a really short list. And what that means is you're effectively figuring out which key, which code message I've used to come up with this this encryption, really simply. Big numbers, obviously, are harder to break. But but the multiplication of two primes raised to the power can produce really, really, really big numbers that aren't reversible. I can't factorise them using a factoring method. Well, not easily. And so we use that level of encryption using massive, massive prime numbers and our randomly located lockbox... Our mailbox to help keep things really secure. And that's the way our credit card security works. That's the way that our um, internet security works. And that's using a random key, often based on prime numbers, to hide away our mailbox and keep its location moving. And that's really, really secure. Just for how long? This is all premised on the fact that we can't figure out those factors of those massively huge prime number thing that we... So what if we could automatically, quickly test for the factors of a function and find those root primes, we would be in a lot of trouble because all of a sudden, all our top secret encryption is no longer encrypted. Say someone else wants to break into our mail and read it. They can't do so unless they uh, know the location of our mailbox and have our key. But they, if they know the location of our mailbox, they can figure out the key and, by just trying a million different keys. And this is effectively what we call as brute forcing.
1: Well, that's right. You, you keep on trying different combinations. It's very similar to a padlock. If you're at school, you want to get into someone's locker and they've got a combination key you could sit there and try all 1000 uh, combinations but
0: it that takes would a take lot a lot of time but for, for randomly encrypted numbers like this we actually have things called rainbow tables which are basically lists of all the massive things you could try and it actually can speed up encryption really really quickly so that's why we use random encryption methods where we move things around with tokens that are changing to make it much much harder but as I mentioned before all these are based on the ability to use really big primes and an irreversible function There's a really nice little area of mathematics called the Millennium Prizes. For those of you unaware, mathematics don't have a Nobel Prize. Alfred Nobel
1: did not leave one for mathematics. It's quite disappointing, actually.
0: So being annoyed at this, mathematics came up with their own medals. They called this the Fields Medal and the Millennium Prizes. And these are basically prizes that exist for solving outstanding issues in mathematics. One of the millennium prizes was solving for Marx's last theorem. But another one is on the Riemann hypothesis, which has to do with, in its application, the factoring of prime numbers. We're not going to get into the complications of what the Riemann hypothesis is. Have a look at it if you're interested. It's a really cool piece of mathematics that we're not sure is true or not yet. If we have a proof, it means we can solve for primes, factors of multiples of primes, really quickly. And as I mentioned before, this is how all our encryption currently is based. So, if anyone manages to prove the Riemann hypothesis. Not only will they million, win a Millennium Prize and a million dollars, they will also probably be the richest person in the world. So not
1: much is the r- richest, Justin, the most powerful. You would hold all of this power. So if you're out there for power in your career, become a mathematician and, and try to solve it, guys.
0: And the big question is that everyone's theorised is that they reckon that people have solved the Riemann hypothesis. Because as soon as someone does, it renders all encryption useless, But you and it forces everyone to change. So if you've figured it out, you don't want to tell anyone. And so this is often happening in cryptographic research. So the NSA, the National Security Agency in the United States, solved so many different types of encryption, came up with all these great code-breaking techniques, but they could never talk about it. So these mathematicians were working away in silence, doing amazing mathematics, but couldn't claim any credit. Even when other people... Thirty years later, solved it independently. They, those other people, who took the credit instead of the people who originally solved it thirty years ago. And there's a lot of examples of this. So we think that it's actually very likely that this kind of factoring of multiple primes method has been solved, but no one knows about it because the most important piece of information in code breaking is not letting other people know that you've broken their code. What if someone has figured out a way, easy way to? factor multiples of primes. What do we do then? How do we still send secret messages? The answer, of course, lies with the wonders of quantum encryption. There's an arms race going on, and that's to solve and develop quantum computing. we talked about quantum computing before, but it's basically using quantum mechanics perform lots and lots of calculations simultaneously. So unlike a computer which only does a couple of tracks of calculations simultaneously, a quantum computer would be able to explore all quantum possibilities almost simultaneously. And that means if you wanted to brute force a password, you could do it like that. But just like you can decrypt things using quantum computers, you can also encrypt things using quantum computers. One of the big problems about our box situation is that we don't know if someone uses a key to open that box. When I'm coming to collect my mailbox, I don't know if Ricardo's left there something there or not. And Ricardo doesn't know if I'm the one who's taken it out or I'm the one who's read it or not. And this is what we call an observer interfering with the situation. So in quantum encryption, what actually happens is the way we encode and wrap the message using quantum entanglement of particles, which we've talked about in previous episodes. So even if they see the message that Rick and I are sending to each other, as soon as they try and read it without using the correct key, it basically disintegrates on a quantum level, on a particle level. We know if... Someone's opened that letter, read that letter, and resealed it and sent it to Rick. And we know that because the quantum wave function will collapse, if not interpreted with the same type of method. What this means, quantum computing can destroy all encryption as we know it, but can also make basically untraceable encryption as well, over very, very long distances with incredible powers of particle physics. So the future is bright and also dark, but mostly bright for quantum encryption. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Today we've talked about... We talked today about the history of code breaking, and how they developed and how we used them in the past. And we looked at public key encryption and how we're using it to keep our data safe online. To protect our game accounts and our Facebook, as well as our emails. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information on the Young Scientists of Australia.